We will start out with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And after a bit of an introduction, we'll spend most of the time there with a few uh, diversions at other places. My wife accompanied me last time we were I was here. And our daughter who lives in Chicago produced the baby daughter uh, Monday. So she is out in Chicago and uh, taking care of the family. So we're thankful for that. And also, I thought I'd just give a little bit of an uh, introduction to this, that's more of an introduction to me and how I look at a sermon. I don't usually do point one and point two or three or four or A, B or C or D. Uh, this morning, we're going to have a little bit of review from when I was here last time. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 4 in a very big, broad sense. And then this morning, as we finish up the introduction, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to the end of the chapter. And we're not going to look at the points that might be there. We're going to look at the text that is there and simply go down through. And we'll take a few uh, looks at a few places in Isaiah and a couple other places. Uh, but we're mainly just going to follow the text down. And then at the end, uh, Lord willing, we'll have some applications to that and the sermon will be over. I find... Uh, as I work on a sermon, that a sermon is never done. As part of my job, I, I turn wood products as a production wood turner. And certainly I would hope that I have things that are standard, but even on that level, I don't want to stop learning. I don't want to say, got it all learned. I mean, that's kind of a sad position to be in. Uh, and especially with the scriptures. And I never, never consider a sermon to be done because I'm not giving a speech. I'm teaching the Word of God. And when can I say, okay, I've got the final word from God on 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 31. You don't have to read another sermon. You don't have to listen to anybody else. No commentaries are needed. This is the final word. That's not me. And I don't think it's anybody else either. And so we're going to look at it in that light. And then I, I worked on my sermon and called it quits last night. I got up this morning, tweaked a few things, hit the print button. And lo and behold, I had a two-hour drive uh, all by myself. <laughs> and traffic wasn't too heavy this morning. And uh, so what happened? I don't spend the time thinking, okay, holding up the paper, memorize this, that comes next, this after that. But rather, I spent the time, by God's grace, thinking about the text. And so I have to throw out my notes. <laughs> Not entirely. And then I came to the Sunday school class and listened in at the, uh, the evangelism class. And I thought it was really well fitted for this message. So I was writing down a few notes. And so that messes up my whole scheme of what I'm going to say to you. So we need to pray for the Lord's blessing, both in the giving and the hearing of his word today. So let's do that. Our Father, we come together as your people. We've sung hymns. We've confessed you are our God and Lord. Christ is our Savior. Your Spirit is the one who's made us alive and who gives us the seal of far greater things to come. We rejoice in the gospel together. We also confess that in ourselves, we do not have the wisdom of God we would be completely satisfied, or at least we would want nothing else of you, 
in our own wisdom. And show us how Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. May we go forth rejoicing in him and may others who maybe have not come to believe may you open their ears and their heart unto Christ. Forgive us of sins. We confess our weaknesses that uh, no sermon, no teaching is ever going to be perfect or complete. No hearing is ever going to be done. May we be a people that grow day after day in the knowledge of our God. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. All right, so last time we looked primarily at just a big view of 1 Corinthians, and I thought uh, I would continue to develop some of the points in the text so that if I ever get asked back to a church, I would say, okay, last time we did this, and everybody would say, oh, yeah, I remember it because, you know, church people always remember sermons, right? <laughs> okay, maybe not. Uh, but anyway, I, I thought I would come and not just randomly give something, but would sort of have a progression. So Paul is writing to the believers at Corinth where he spends some time himself uh, establishing the church. I'm not going to hash over some of the very opening parts of the book, but I have a series of verses that I'd like to read or or mention as we go down through here. And uh, one of the parts about the evangelism question uh, discussion was, what does the world need? And I think Paul is addressing very succinctly and clearly what the world needs. The world, in a sense, does not need people who are living better Christian lives, although that's a very important aspect of it. They simply need the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. Now, certainly how it impacts our life is an important part of the witness, but they need the gospel. And Paul is arguing for that here in this section of the book, chapters 1 through chapters 4 of the book of 1 Corinthians. And he puts it even before the question of the man in adultery in chapter 5. So Paul, if we say the first thing in his priority, what he writes about first is what? The divisions that are among these people in the church. And these divisions, he calls them worldly in other places, fleshly in in other places. He he addresses this, this point. And the point is, Not so much that he's pointing blame at those who would be the founders of the church or the the pastors of the church, per se. But a lot of the blame falls upon the people sitting in the pew. And so Paul is is addressing this point, and and I'd just like to run down through some verses with maybe a few comments, but not preaching another whole sermon on that. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 10, uh, verses 10 through 13. I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you. And this is a big point that he's talking about uh, through the next four chapters. But that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And then Paul asks these questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Skipping down to verse 17, which we'll look more at in a few minutes. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, 
Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Skipping down to chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I come to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And I think this simply means that the spirit and power is not by might, not by works, that is human wisdom, human works, but rather through the spirit and the power and the demonstration of the spirit that is to take a sinner and turn the sinner into a God worshiper through Christ Jesus. And so uh, that's how I would understand that point. So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this is Paul's theme, particularly we've been looking at that today in this text. The wisdom of man on the one hand, and what? The power of God, the wisdom of God on the other hand. And this is a very big uh, point in the, the, the whole chapter, uh, several, four chapters. Uh, chapter 3. Beginning with verse 3, a part that we read in Sunday school, I think, or here someplace. For a while, there is jealousy or strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? But when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. For neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who causes the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Now, skipping down to just verse 12 and following. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, uh, wood, hay, stuff, straw, each one's works will become manifest. For the day, that is the day of the Lord when Christ comes back, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work has any, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will receive, suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And I mentioned last time, and I would just touch upon it for a brief moment, I think the proper understanding of this last section, verses 12 through 15, is not the individual Christian's life. But the foundation has been laid, and Paul says, others are building on it. What are they building? The church. But if somebody comes along and says, you know, New England is a pretty hard area, and we've preached and preached and preached the gospel, but it's simply not working. And I've heard, I've read a book, I listened to something on YouTube, and this guy is doing this, and his church is growing. So we don't necessarily abandon the gospel, but we add to it Apollos. We add to it Paul. We add to it other human factors. 
And lo and behold, we have a congregation that maybe is growing, but why are they coming? Because of Christ and Paul. Because of Christ and Apollos. The gospel is not Christ and Apollos. It's not Christ and Paul. It's Christ crucified. And that's the gospel. And so if we build on something with something else that is human wisdom, that is designed to get people in and bypass the sovereign work of God in salvation, what will we have in the judgment day? Perhaps a church that is mostly full of consumable stuff that will not last and it will not pass through the judgment that will suffer loss. He goes on to mention that there are those in the, sometimes in the church who even destroy the church. And verse 17 in closing, and this, uh, no, excuse me, verse 17 and then following down to verse 23. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive you. Let, excuse me, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apostle, or Apollos, rather, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or present, or the future. All are yours. You are Christ, and Christ is God's. And skipping down to one verse in chapter 4, verse 6. I applied all these things to myself and Apollos. For your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. I'd like to read one verse from chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, and it happens to be verse 10. Paul giving the impression of what these Corinthian people thought of him personally. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. And so Paul, who would strive to come among them, not with lofty words, not with eloquent speech, not with reading the Corinthian guide to successful motivational speeches, but rather he came deliberately aiming to know nothing amongst them except the cross of Jesus Christ. So they had a little preaching contest vote. Guess who came in last? And so if Paul was preaching that Sunday... Maybe a few of the faithful deacons and a couple of people who don't have internet and didn't catch the, the, the note show up. Who wants to hear Paul? Give us somebody fiery, somebody with lots of good illustrations, somebody who tickles us in the flesh in certain ways. And we will come listen. This church had problems. And it wasn't so much the people that God sent to minister to them. It was the people in the church. And I would suggest it's all of us today. Do I have some of my favorite speakers and authors and commentators? Yes. Is it possible to get wrapped up in human teaching and liking and following a man 
more than it is Jesus Christ, and it certainly is. So that's the beginning, of the introduction. I'd just like to close that part with with one more reference. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8, Paul gives us a definition of what he means by the cross of Christ or the gospel. And certainly, we should not understand that all I have to do is go out and tell people, Jesus Christ died on the cross. When we talk about the cross of Christ, it's not quite that simple. But notice he's assuming certain things. He's assuming we have an understanding of who Christ is in the first place. He's not another man, merely another man. He's God come in the flesh. And that's abundantly clear in all of Scripture. But he doesn't list that point. He doesn't talk about the, the nativity, the birth of Christ. He doesn't talk about the shepherds and the angels. But he assumes that these people know these things. And he points to just a couple of things proclaiming what is the gospel. Now, Paul writes in chapter one, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And notice the conditional little if there. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And this morning in the, the Sunday school class, there was a little bit of discussion about people who believed, you know, when they were a kid, who signed, uh, you know, a little statement when they were at camp or wherever, or Bible school, saying that they heard and they believed. And, and did they? The question, you know, were they just doing it because three of their friends did this, or, or why? And what is Paul saying here? How is it that you are going to be saved? And the doctrines that come out of the scripture is those who are God's people will persevere. They will endure. And I understand that you're going through the book of Hebrews as we are at Christ the King as well. So that's why I'm not teaching from Hebrews because you find out on the same page. But what does it say in Hebrews? That today is the day that we need to hear. And hearing, what do we do? We believe. And it's not that we have a testimony, 50 years ago I did this. The writer of Hebrews and Paul is interested, what are you confessing today? In chapter 3, for example, he lists three points in verses 1 and 2 and in verse 6 of Hebrews that we confess the Lord, that our hope is in the Lord, and we are, uh, our confidence is in the Lord. So confession, confidence, and hope are there. And it's not that I had those things 25 years ago. I had them yesterday. And in the end of chapter 2, 3, and on into chapter 4, what do we see? Today, while it's still today, what are we supposed to do? Hear the voice of the Son and believe. And so we are called upon not to believe the gospel yesterday, not to believe the gospel tomorrow, but to believe the gospel today. So Paul writes the same thing as we find in Hebrews. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I declare to you, in verse 3, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, 
though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And one of the concerns that comes out of these first four chapters of Corinthians is that the messenger is becoming more important than the message. And Paul says the gospel is not about the messenger unless you go to the book of Hebrews. And in chapter 1, verse 2, in these last times, last days, what happened? God spoke to us through his son. And Paul is pointing us to his son, not just what did he say, but what did he do? He died on the cross. Why? He also rose again. And why? Because he's supplying for God's people everything that is needed for God's people to stand in glory with a God who is holy, holy, holy. So now looking more at our, our text. And one of the th- things that I uh, would change a little bit from my notes, and I scribbled in some stuff, and one problem that I have is reading my notes you know, sometime later that I've just scribbled in. I don't know if anybody else has got any problem or not. But, uh, but uh, as I was coming up here, I thought, this is really in line with the Exodus. What these verses that we're going to be looking at, I'll read the verses in just a minute. In the Exodus, what happened? God's people had become enslaved. They were groaning under the weight of that slavery. They were multiplying, and the children, the male children, were supposed to be put to death. And Moses was a particular point in that. Uh, He was saved, miraculously. And God called Moses back. And somebody who is like Moses is going to come someday. And who is that? It's not yet we're looking for him, but he's come already. He's Jesus Christ. He's come. And what did God set out to do? There was Pharaoh, Pharaoh's priests and wise men and magicians. There was this whole system that Egypt had that I would like to just condense to one simple phrase, the wisdom of the world. Did Pharaoh need to listen to Moses? He didn't think so. Why? Because he had his gods. He had everything that he needed. He had the little Egyptian system all worked out. Everything was going smoothly, or at least good enough. The Egyptian people were there, and Israel was enslaved. And by the time the plagues were done, Israel was free. Pharaoh was broken. His armies smashed or drowned. And Egypt ruined and destroyed and even pillaged from the Israelite people as as they were favored and the people gave them their wealth and they departed. There was a confrontation between man, between humanity, between the wisdom of this world and God. And God simply saying, let my people go. And the world saying, nope, no way. I think there's a similarity, which I'm not going to try to build upon too much uh, as we go down through this. But God is also in our chapter, in our passage, attacking something. We've mentioned it several times already in the verses that we've read. The wisdom of this world was very key, very vital to the Corinthian people as natural, sinful people, and even too much so now that they were believers. 
And the world needs to be put aside. The wisdom of this world needs to be put aside. Not just, oh, I came to Christ. I set the world aside. But today, when you get up in the morning, when you go through the day, when you come to church, we go home and go to work tomorrow or whatever, we need to look at the wisdom of this world and say, that is what God is opposed to. God is breaking that. God is destroying that. And what is going to last? The wisdom of God as manifest in the person of Christ Jesus. So let's look in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'll start reading with verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards of the flesh. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He who, excuse me, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts, in the Lord. May the Lord bless his word to us. So as we look at this, this morning we find Paul saying, I was sent not to baptize, but rather to preach the gospel. To proclaim the gospel as official representative from God Almighty, and particularly through Christ who had met him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, I'm going to show you what great things you have to suffer for my sake. And he gave him the gospel, and he believed. So this is the guy who's writing this. Paul says, God sent me. And he sent me to proclaim this and not to do anything else, simply to proclaim the gospel. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 4, and I'm just going to summarize this. He basically says, if we had, back in the, uh, the law, giving of the law and so forth, if we had to listen to the words of angels, and those who disregarded those words suffered the penalty of even death sometimes, what about the message, the voice of the Son of God? And Paul looks at this very much so in his proclamation. I'm here to give only the vital elements, the vital factors of this little speech that God has given me. And that's Christ crucified according to scriptures. Christ buried and Christ raised again according to scriptures. Do I enjoy tent making? Yeah, and I'll talk tent making a little bit, but I'm here to present the gospel. My whole life is about the gospel until God takes me from this world. Do I enjoy fishing? Yeah. I'll talk about fishing a little bit, but I'm telling you, my life, my ministry, my purpose for being here is to present the gospel. So Paul is arguing that, and I don't want to mix any human wisdom into it. I want to just purely give you the gospel. That's all. Lest the cross of Christ, the particular cross, not just any cross, but Christ's cross, is emptied. And that's as far as the text goes in, in the Greek. It doesn't say emptied of its power, although that's a good, I think, substitution, or insertion, rather. But simply, he doesn't want to empty the cross of Christ. Period. So he goes on and he says in verse uh, 18, there are two kinds of people in this world. Who are they and what are they? Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And just a couple comments here. Those who are perishing, it's just simply an active. They're going through life continuing as they always have lived. When people enter enter this world, what are they? They're under the wrath of God. What's the relief for that? Only one thing, the gospel. And so they look at the gospel, they hear the gospel, they read the gospel, and what happens? Foolishness, foolishness, foolishness. But those of us who are being saved, and this is passive, what does that mean? That something or somebody is acting upon us. And remember Christ saying about Peter, I'm going to build this church upon this statement, this declaration of faith and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell, I was listening to one fine Presbyterian preacher, he said the gates of Mordor will not stand. And this little Presbyterian church, he says, whoops, we're in a Baptist church, aren't we? And people nodded their head, yes. Okay, this little Baptist church outside the gates of Mordor. What is Christ doing? He's reaching into the kingdom of darkness, into the gates, past the gates of hell, And he's picking up a sinner. And he's saying, this is mine. I've purchased, I've bought this one, and now I'm bringing the gospel to him or her. And he brings us out and places us in the kingdom of light. And he says, no gates of hell are ever going to prevail. I will find my own, and I will bring them home. And how is he doing it? Through the sowing, the proclamation, simply of the cross of Christ. So going down to the next verse, verse 20, uh, verse 19, sorry, I, I jumped ahead. 
For it is written, and he quotes two verses probably loosely, sometimes closer, especially looking at the, the Greek text in the Old Testament. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning or the intelligence of the intelligent. I will thwart. Then he also quotes another verse. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And he concludes, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So to start backwards a little bit, what does he mean by what he's talking about? That God is allowing wisdom of the world, wisdom of the flesh, to flourish, to be fruitful. Why? So that he will have some evidence in all of eternity that this amounted to absolutely nothing positive. There's no spiritual fruit here that's positive. There's no life here. And Paul writes in First, uh, yeah, first Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 17, about how that we, before we came to know Christ, were living in the darkness and the ignorance of our mind. I'm paraphrasing several verses here right, quite loosely. And then he writes, but you did not come to know Christ in this way. It is not through any human wisdom that we follow a path and find on some mountaintop or some valley or some temple someplace or some obscure writing or some very popular writing. Ha! Here's Christ. We did not find Christ pursuing any worldly or fleshly wisdom. In a sense, Christ was a surprise. God worked a miracle. He made us have ears and gave us a new heart. And the gospel suddenly was no longer foolishness. That's jumping ahead a little bit. But what does Paul say here? And as he quotes several places, I want to just call your attention to them. The first one is found in Isaiah. They're both found in Isaiah. Chapter 29 and verses 13 and 14. This is the quote found Probably. There's some discussion about this, but I like this argument, the argument for this text the best. And so we turn to Isaiah 29, verses 13 and 14, and it reads like this. The Lord said, and I would encourage you this afternoon to go through the context of several verses that I'll give to you uh, throughout the message coming from the Old Testament. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. With wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Now Paul takes that last word, be hidden, and he changes it to be thwarted. But other than that, he quotes this text, I think, pretty well. And again, I would encourage you to look at the context here. But what is he doing? God is doing something marvelous, something that he calls wonderful. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the discerning, the intelligent, and their all of their wisdom shall be hidden. I was reading Beals and uh, Carson on this particular text, and they brought out something interesting. I hadn't thought of this before, so I had to track it down and see if they were right. But if you look at, the, just even in the English, the, 
word wonderful or wonder in the book of Isaiah, it doesn't occur very often. And one time it just kind of says, I wonder wonder about something, W-O-N, and that's a different category. But I would like to just read three verses to you and see what this word wonder or wonderful has to do with wisdom. You might recognize this verse. I'll read it first, then I'll give you the, the, the address. For to us, a child is born. To us, the son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called, what? <laughs> Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So that's the first occurrence of the word wonderful, and it's Wonderful Counselor. That's who, who is. Jesus is the Wonderful Counselor. And counselors, of course, give what? <laughs> Advice, wisdom, counsel. In chapter 25, verse 1, that was 9, 6, by the way, in Isaiah, in case you didn't remember. Uh, chapter 25 and verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. And then listen to the rest of the verse. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So it's looking at the whole plan of God, the whole scheme of God. And what is he saying? This is God's wisdom. It was planned of old. It's faithful and sure. And who does it really point to as we look at how the New Testament unfolds? The love, the faithfulness, uh, the steadfast mercy of God. There's Christ and Christ and Christ. He is the wisdom of God. Lastly, Chapter 28 and verse 29 of Isaiah. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So we as believers, we have no reason to apologize to the world. The world's wisdom is failing. The world's wisdom, when it comes to the judgment day, is always going to betray us. And those who die with confidence in this or that philosophy, this or that religion, or whatever they adopt. And there's lots of people who would like to say, and I had an uncle who passed away uh, kind of recently, and the obituary read, he died with his family gathered around him. I said, okay, that's a good thing. I'm not trying to knock that at all. But as far as I know, he did not know the Lord. So was that the end of him? Because his family just say, oh, you know, dad or grandpa or whatever. He's going to be okay. He was a good guy. How many people are going to die with confidence and face a God who says, I oppose worldly wisdom. I oppose the wisdom of man. I oppose everything that man says. This is a good thing. God will accept you. Do this. Pay me lots of money. Take this trip. Deny this. Be baptized. Even join a church. It's empty. Because what and who is the wisdom of God? It's Christ Jesus. The second quote coming in the next verse, verse 20, is found in Isaiah 33. And it's verse 18. And if you have a Bible trivia question or game sometime, this verse, Isaiah 33:18 and 1 Corinthians 1:20 have something in common. 
They're the only two verses in the whole Bible, the English Bible and also the Greek Bible, I think we could say, that has the word where mentioned three times. So how important is that theologically and spiritually? Uh, please don't make that your major theme of taking away something from this message. But for something trivia, this is, these two verses are the only ones that have the word where three times. And I think they're, they are connected, although maybe not quite as strongly as the other one that we just read. But chapter 33 of Isaiah and verse 18. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs the tribute? Where is he who counts the towers? And in the context, I think this is looking at the enemy who comes and says, okay, this fortification, we're measuring it. We're taking it into an assessment. How should we tear it down? How should we defeat it? But in the context, the children of God are going to flourish. And as we go on and on in the chapter, the enemy is gone. Where is this one who is plotting the destruction of, if you would, the heavenly Jerusalem? He's gone. He's conquered. And God is thwarting. God is setting to nothing all of the powers, all of the wisdom and thoughts. Going back to Psalm 2, you're familiar with that. Why do the he's in the rage and the nations and the kings take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed? And their end is destruction. Their end is they are now turned to nothing. In the book of Acts, I'll just recount this a little bit, uh, chapter 4, and the particular text I'm interested in is verses 7 through 17. But in the previous section, we had the man who was crippled and Peter came in, you know, rich Peter. <laughs> hey, hey, you guys, uh, give me some money, the guy says. He says, I haven't got any, but what I do have, I will give you. And he healed the guy, and he leaped up, and he worshipped God with them. It caused quite a distraction, apparently. And it got the attention of the very godly and wise Jewish spiritual leaders. And there was a little discussion and investigation into what was going on. And this is the passage, too, where we find that there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's chapter 4, verse 12. And right after that, in verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say. That is, these religious leaders had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, that is, everybody out, we're going to take a private little conversation here, they conferred with one another and said, what shall we do with these men? For that a noble sign has been performed through them is evident of all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And of course, they did not listen to them at all. But notice here, what is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians about the Jews? The Jews want what? A sign. So here, in their own temple, Peter comes in, heals a guy, of course, in the name of Christ, not in the name of Peter. What is that called? What has just happened? A sign. They look at the sign and say, wow, this is really a marvelous thing. That means we can't do anything bad to these guys because everybody knows this guy. He was in his 40s and he's healed. First time in his life. So we can't really be the bad guys here. But does this sign lead the Jews to believe? It does not. They believe no more today than they did back in the days of Christ. They kept wanting a sign. Give me a sign. 
But the hardness of their heart prohibited them from ever looking at that sign and saying, Ha, I'm convinced finally. The hardness of their heart betrayed them. As we go down through the text, we find that Paul now is directing his attention more to those who are called. And the calling here is not so much, hey guys, I'm having a party, come on over if you want to. But rather, the word called as it's used here and in other places in the scripture is actually a word that is more looking at the activity of God. God is drawing people to himself. God is making people alive. This is not just an invitation to come. This is a command to come. And with God, the command is, let there be light. What came forth? Light. And he's saying that spiritually, as Second uh, Corinthians, Paul argues in that, uh, chapter 3 and 4. And this is the same thing. God is calling sinners. God is calling people who once were following the philosophy, the wisdom of this world. And so we find that Paul is now directing our attention to those who us who are called. We find this starting in verse uh, um, 20, uh, let's see, uh, skipping down a little bit, uh, 20, no, I, I guess I skipped 21. Uh, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe or who are believing. So we have the, the belief here of the gospel going forth. The folly on the one hand, but those of us who are being saved, we now think completely different. And one of the parts of the discussion of the, the evangelism group was, what do people think of us when we give them the gospel? So if wise people in the world who are happy and content with their life, more or less, and we come along and say, Jesus, crucified, risen again. <laughs> yeah, the world says, these guys, you know, they've got, maybe, you know, I, I love Aunt Sue or Uncle Bob or whatever, but you know, the gospel thing is kind of weird. It doesn't make me comfortable. I don't like that. I'm not going to invite them to the Christmas party next year. All he talks about is Christ at Christmas time. Can you imagine that? Santa Claus is what Christmas is about. Uh, so he gets things all mixed up. And so he says, this is God's intent, God's purpose. That is, uh, the world did not know through its own wisdom Christ. Now, in verse 22, for Jews demand a sign. We mentioned that a little bit. And so Christ, uh, the Jews to Christ is a stumbling block and to the Jews and Gentiles a folly. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And secondly, it is the wisdom of God. So verse 26, for consider your calling. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. And this is talking about us. So look around. And of course, we can say, but I'm one of those people who are wise. And God chose me. I'm somebody who's something, right? And you guys, my neighbors, the people I'm touching shoulders with, you know, I certainly can understand how you're not so wise or you're not so big and important. But he's really pressing us to think about this carefully. Me. Not the other guy sitting next to me, but me. Who am I and why did God choose me? I don't know if they still do this or not and I don't really recommend it, but as I was growing up, we had various teams, whether it be kick the can or baseball or whatever. And how do we pick teams? Well, we pick captains. Then how do the captains go about picking the teams? said, okay, you and you and you and you. They picked all the good players. 
So who's left? The players that aren't so good. And you could know it happened over and over again. Who were the first people picked and who was left or last? Is God making choices like that? Is God looking around the world and saying, oh, that person is just would be so good in my kingdom. They've got so many gifts and they're really blessed. And this person over here. Or is God, in a sense, turning things upside down? Is the folly of God, which people look at and say, that church is full of nobodies. Well, the world might say that. But what does God say? And are these people that are left, that nobody else wants, if you would, that God is making a team out of, is it becoming a successful team because the people are, are now free of the other people, they're starting to get their act together? Or are these people going to shine as the sun someday because they've been given something that no coach in this world could ever give? And he says, consider your calling that not many of you were wise in this world. How many of you receive regular contact through uh, email or phone calls or or even old-fashioned letters from governors, from presidents, from CEOs, asking your advice and counsel? I haven't received too many. And in many ways, we are not the important people in this world. I've never starred in a movie other than a YouTube thing that I posted. <laughs> then I didn't even show my face. I just showed my hands doing something. So, you know, not too much glory there. Who are we as called of God? We're not the movers and shakers of this world. We're not the people who show up at the important parties when the dignitaries show up. We're the common, everyday, little people of this world. And God is deliberately choosing these people to call together for his assembly, for his fellowship, for his body, in order to do something, to shame or to bring to nothing the things that are. So that one day, we, who the people that the world never wanted to listen to, will stand with Christ in glory and the world will look on. And all of their hopes are gone and empty. So looking at this, uh, I'd like to turn to the book of uh, 2 Thessalonians for a couple of verses in chapter 2. What is it meant by call? And I think Paul answers it pretty well in two verses, 13 and 14. What is Paul talking about when he uses the word called? Chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians and verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And that's a key point right there. Who is Paul thanking? He's not thanking the saints and the pews. He's thanking the God who brought sinners to Christ. Brothers, and then he says, Beloved of the Lord, or by the Lord, Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this you are called through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's quite a statement. Just look around and look at your own self today in in the, the mirror that you know what you look like. 
What is the end purpose of God calling you? To clothe us with the glory of Jesus Christ. That's a wow. That's a call to fall, fall down and worship the Lord. That's beyond our comprehension and understanding. And it doesn't come through human wisdom. It comes through the gift of God and the eternal established plan of a faithful and true God. So as we look at this, I want to just point out just briefly something that I found kind of interesting. As Paul is describing these people, uh, those of us who are are believers, in verse uh, 28, but God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Now pay attention to the word are there, are not. To bring to nothing things that are. Now back in Exodus chapter 3, there was this burning bush. And Moses came over and looked at it. He was called to come and approach it, take off his sandals. And there was a little discussion between God and Moses. What's your name? And what is God's name in this context? I am that I am. And in the Greek Bible for the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's the, the verb amy. Uh, which means to be. And Paul is using that very same verb here in this. He's taking the things that are not to be. He's taking the things that don't be so that he might confront the things that be. I think God ultimately is the I am who I am. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. He's completely content. He's completely packaged and happy in himself. He does not need anything else. He's everything that he ever wanted to be. He is God completely. So I'm not trying to say that these people are God or consider themselves, but the things, the people that look at themselves and say, yep, I am. I've got it. I've got a good life. I'm happy. I'm content. I've got a kids, I've got some grandkids, you know, I'm retired, I'm happy. I am. Or I'm the chief engineer, or I'm, I'm the CEO of this, or I, I reached my dream, I traveled around the world, I am. But he's taking the things that the world would look at and say, they're not. <laughs> so that he would nullify or bring to nothing the things that are. Then in verse 29, he summarizes why he's doing all of this. And it's very consistent with what he's argued all the way down through here. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So when it comes to the judgment day and all of us would stand before him, there's not one human being who's going to be able to stand up before God and say, God, look how successful I was. Look how religious I was. And Paul is a good example of this in Philippians chapter 3, and I won't read through this, but what was his initial badge of righteousness? Who he was by birth, who he was by training, and what he was by his uh, zeal to persecute the church. And he could pull out these cards and say, God, look! And he expected God to welcome him in with a big smile, patting him on the back, well done, Saul. But Paul was willing to toss all of that, consider it as manure, as rubbish, so that he might gain Christ. So Paul, as he's writing this, he's saying God is deliberately setting himself to oppose the things, to oppose the beings in this world 
who are self-made, who look to the world, to look to their own self and say, God thinks I'm a good guy. God would never judge me for doing that. God is okay with me. God is happy with me. Or I did lots of things, and surely those things are going to outweigh the bad things, and on and on and on. Not one thing that is of human effort, that is of human wisdom, is going to stand before God and receive well done from God. I'm not going to look at the details of the next verse, verse 30. We could spend a whole length of time on that too. But the main verb of verse 30, just looking at verse 30 itself, is very simple. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. And simply, uh, in, in the Greek text is a little different, but you can say he is. Literally, it says, out of him... You are in Christ. The verb is you are. And the subject of the verb is you are. That's it. The rest of it is prepositional phrases. And then a relative clause tacked on at the end. You are what? You are in Christ. Then he answers the question, how do you get to be in Christ? And it says simply out of him. And the him is referring back in the previous verse to God the Father. So he's saying God the Father has made you to be in Christ Jesus. And then a relative clause defining more about Jesus. And God made Jesus to be God's wisdom to us. And then we have a little interpretive question. Is he listing four things in this verse about what God made Christ to be? Or is he saying God is Christ's wisdom? That is these three things that I'm going to mention. Sanctification, righteousness, and redemption. I kind of go along with that idea. that This is the wisdom of God. Christ is. And particularly for the point of our discussion, he's our redemption. He paid the ransom. He declared me righteous because he was good and righteous and he gave me his righteousness. And not only that, but he's sanctifying me now and one day he's going to clothe me with all of his holiness and I will stand with him in glory. Then he quotes, and, and really, I'll, I'll just leave you this real quickly. I, uh, Jeremiah chapter 9. If you look at verses 22 through 26, I think this is where Paul is quoting this whole section. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 22 through 26. Uh, we can see some of what Paul is arguing here. So he closes with this statement. As it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what does this passage mean to me? What does it mean to you, hopefully? What should it mean to us as God's people? One of the first things I would take away in the sense of a negative thing is God hates, he stands against human wisdom. So if I want to have any hope of standing before God, I need to reject human wisdom, both in how I initially come to God and also, secondly, how I stay in God's favor. How many of you have ever struggled with sin and you sinned something that you thought was a great sin and you said, oh, is God really going to forgive me? Well, if he's called us and Christ has become everything that we need before him, if we have, according to Hebrews, this faithful high priest who has become like one of us, except without sin, we find that we have a priest who's going to forgive And he's going to forgive simply because 
He is Christ and he is the high priest and the sacrifice and he paid for all of my sins. I cannot become holy enough to still merit Christ keeping me any more than I could merit being brought into Christ. I was brought into Christ by God's favor. How do I stay there in the favor of God in Christ Jesus? So I need to abandon and I need to recognize that God is actively, just like he was against Pharaoh and the ways of Egypt and the gods of Egypt, he's opposing the gods of this world, the wisdom of this world. So on the other hand, if God is blessing, God is pointing us to the one who is the wisdom of God, what should I do? And no matter how sinful we might be, the place to go, the way to go, is not away from God, who is the holy God and with a consuming fire, according to Hebrews. But we run towards that God. We fall down and we confess our sins and we believe the gospel that Christ on the cross paid all that is needed and he clothed me with his righteousness and he made me holy. The book of Hebrews encourages us several times to encourage us along the way to speak the word to other, not unsaved people, but to believers. Why? Because sometimes we struggle with going back to the ways of the world. And so we come here together not just to sing wonderful songs, not just to read the scriptures or to be taught the scriptures, but we are a body that we need to look at each other and grab our hands and say, come, I want to encourage you. I know it's hard right now. We minister the scriptures and we walk toward God together through Christ Jesus. And lastly, to get back to the, the, the uh, evangelism class a little bit, what do we need to give to the world? I would like to suggest it's not, number one, our testimony. No matter how gory it might be, how fascinating it might be, or how boring. Look, that guy was just a plain old good guy, didn't really do anything too bad, and God saved him. I mean, he's not going to be testifying in our church. I mean, that's not good enough to testify. Actually, it's a great testimony that God would save self-righteous people as much as he would save wicked sinners, right? But our testimony is not the main thing. The gospel is the main thing. So we point to God made us to be in Christ Jesus and Christ became to us the wisdom of God. Or to take the words of Isaiah, Christ, a wonderful counselor. Amen.